0: And oh and I find out it's pronounced Chris Eyre in case you didn't know that. I knew that.
1: Okay, great. It's pronounced Just Michael Apted. Apted. Yeah.
2: But you didn't know that. Yeah. It's also I'm gonna, it's,
0: I know I'm going to say de I it's like I feel like I always say it wrong.
2: Yeah, but. it's also Balushi, which most people get wrong. <laughs> John Balushi. <laughs> it's Ernest Sauchak. god damn cut the policeman isn't there to create
3: disorder the policeman is there to preserve disorder gentlemen get the thing straight once and for all we clear the streets along his route deploy our men and create an impassable barrier a gauntlet if you will he won't have a chance i challenge you to a duel the truth this guy's starting to get on my nerves (laughs) It's hot. That's hot out there. Let's we all walk out there. It's very, very, very hot.
2: Open fire. Hello folks and welcome to another edition of The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Andrew Stasiulis, and I'm here tonight with Eric Marsh and Ryan Saunders. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature Podcast in which one of the hosts selects a topic and the other two hosts are tasked with bringing films to the table that meet the topic or challenge the topic in interesting ways. And then we have it out. We hash it all out right here in the Gauntlet Studios. I was up this week. It was my turn to pick. And as I mentioned at the end of last week's episode recently i had seen former president barack obama's uh list of his top movies of 2021 and you know i have to say for the most part it's a real like depressing list because it just seems like so phony like not a single one of them isn't certified fresh by Rotten Tomatoes. You know what I mean? That's a coward's yeah. list right there. No deep picks at all. Just like somebody curated that list, I, I I believe, personally. But regardless, you know, we're not necessarily here to talk about President Obama. Uh, we're here to talk about other presidents' picks. Uh, and that was my that was my choice uh, for the topic. I wanted you folks to bring me films that presidents past had uh, selected either as their, their favorite film or a film that that they mentioned somewhere that they really admired or respected or simply had a good time with. And uh, happy to say that you both brought uh, some very excellent films, one I'd seen before, one I hadn't seen before. And uh, I think in, in very interesting ways, they reveal quite a bit about the... Commander-in-Chief, who screened the film. So, not to steal either of your thunder, uh, let's just get into it, and you can tell everybody the films and the presidents that you have brought into our hallowed halls today. So why don't we start with the earlier film? We'll start with you, Eric. Why don't you
1: tell us what you brought? Well, when I think about movies and presidents, I think about the first movie star president, Ronald Reagan, who obviously, uh, in the intermingling of politics and entertainment, is a very special figure, obviously, uh, in the 20th century, coming out of classic Hollywood into the world of advertising and into the world of politics. And some people may say, hey, what's the difference between any of that stuff, right? So, That's immediately where where my mind went, and of course also the, you know, perpetual hat tip to Jay Hoberman, whose writings have had me interested in this kind of concept or topic before, right? Hoberman's written uh, a trilogy of books about what he calls the dream life, which is, yeah, that intermingling uh, conscious and not of the American entertainment state and spectacular that we've uh, had going on here for quite a while. And so I was combing through the logs and I was thinking about Ronald Reagan and thinking, of course, Reagan very much in his relationship to cinema, right, is associated with escapism. And fantasy, right? Because it ties into who he was and his ideology, which was very formed by Hollywood and their movies and and all that stuff, right? So I wanted to pick just a kind of a random movie he watched and enjoyed and didn't think about too much in the spirit of of him himself right so uh, I came across the Continental Divide from 1981 which is a comedy directed by British journeyman Michael Apted most famous of course for the Up series but also did quite a bit of genre work and of course directed a bond as well and This film stars John Belushi, and as we are introduced to his character, Ernie Suchak, who is a Chicago newspaper man on the go. And it's basically, uh, he's sort of riffing on Mike Royko, the famous Chicago columnist. And so Ernie Suchak is hot on the case of a corrupt alderman, Alderman Jablanowitz and he's running around town with his pork pie hat, pounding the pavement, scribbling in shorthand, and then, you know, things get too hot as he's beat up by some policemen on behalf of the corrupt aldermen. And so his editor, the editor of the Chicago Sun-Times, as played by Alan Garfield and filmed, of course, in the real Sun-Times offices, decides to send Suchak away to, you know, for safety purposes. On assignment. On assignment as well. And so the editor and his wife concoct a scheme to send our newspaper man, our big city newspaper man, out into the country, and specifically the Rocky Mountains, where he is going to report on Dr. Nell Porter played by Blair Brown, who is a doctor conducting research on American bald eagles at a time in which they they were threatened, so we'll talk about that as well. But yeah, from there, it is essentially a romantic comedy, and one that is specifically in the mold of a classic Hollywood romantic comedy. The film was written by young Lawrence Kasdan the same year as Raiders and Body Heat came out. He had three films come out that year, and this was one of them. And he modeled it on those old, you know, Hepburn, Tracy comedies. Screwball and screwball comedies. Yeah, and, and so that's it. You know, it's the newspaper man goes west and, and all that that entails, and we'll, we'll pick that up uh, in a minute. Thank you so
0: much. Ryan, how about you? What did you bring to the table? This is also a topic that over the years I've become very fascinated with, and I will credit Marsh for making me Hoberman-pilled uh, by also <laughs> introducing me to those texts. And the idea of the way that presidents and what they're watching could somehow reflect the way they were thinking at that moment, and just that bizarre cultural collision of looking at the logs of a president's movie watching evenings at, at Camp David and then thinking about what they were up to throughout the day and the next day. So one of the first people I looked at was Jimmy Carter because he has he has some real cinephile hours. That guy in his four years as president watched over 400 films and it, it is a remarkable list that I recommend all listeners go and take a look at. I think I read that He watched
2: more films in his single four year term than Reagan did in
0: eight years. He did. And he also then naturally watched quite a bit more than the president I ended up landing on, who was Bill Clinton, who watched far less than 400 films um, in his eight years. But when I was going through the list of Bill Clinton, you know, one of the reasons I was drawn to him was, you know, Marsh, you were talking about thinking of Reagan as the Hollywood president. I was thinking of Bill Clinton as the sex pest hanging out with Harvey Weinstein on uh, an airplane president. (laughs) And when I was looking over these films you know they were they were fairly typical and they were all many current releases you know bill clinton has talked about how he's a big high noon guy but he was watching a lot of contemporary stuff to sort of veg out in the evening and during his term of presidency but there was one film that really stood out to me and that is the film smoke signals from 1998, directed by Chris Eyre, Smoke Signals is very well known as being one of the most widely released indigenous films of all time. It was a big Sundance hit when it came out, um, and it reached a much wider audience than any other indigenous cinema uh, from the United States had up until that point. And I thought, It was a very ironic thing coming across that film on the list of something a president watched, thinking about a president watching a film about Native Americans and what he might have thought about it. And when I looked at the date, I saw he had watched it on July 8th, and it was the very next day on a panel about affirmative action that he had Sherman Alexie for a discussion, and Sherman Alexie is the one who wrote the short story that Smoke Signals is, is based off of. We'll talk about that that meeting uh, with Sherman Alexie a little bit later. But Smoke Signals opens on the white man's independence day in 1976, the bicentennial, and. During a night of revelry a fire breaks out in one of the homes on the reservation the Cerdalen Reservation in Idaho and Arnold Joseph, in a very spirited performance from the great Gary Farmer, catches Thomas Builds the Fire, a young infant who is tossed out of the window in the burning blaze of the home, and he rescues him. Arnold then sort of becomes somewhat of a proxy father, or at least leads a proxy family for Thomas, but this leads to a somewhat contentious relationship with Arnold's real son, Victor, played by the great Adam Beach. And Early on in the film, once we return to the present day, Victor gets news that his father, who has since left home because of his alcoholic behavior and has fled to Phoenix, is now dead. Thomas, who has some funds, offers to take them down to Phoenix so they can collect the body of Arnold Joseph. And on that road trip and on that journey down into Phoenix, Arizona, kind of has a structure you would expect from like a 90s Sundance indie hit. They are both reflecting on their relationship, on their own cultural identity, and the past blends with the present as they start thinking about their own relationship and their relationship with Arnold Joseph, who in his story is revealed through flashbacks as they are heading down south. And it is a a journey of discovery down to Phoenix, Arizona. It's a very lovely film. It's a nice buddy road comedy, but it has a lot of heart and it has a lot of really wonderful, details that you see so infrequently. And that's when it's a community that is sort of representing itself on screen for the first time, or at least feeling like it's finally getting a chance to be visible. So yeah, I wonder, I wonder what Bill Clinton thought of it. And I think that's something that, you know, we can talk about when we take a closer look at Bill Clinton's feelings of the indigenous population in the United States. But that is Smoke Signals from 1998. Well, thank you. Thank you both.
2: You know, last week when we did our episode on I guess you could say a sort of retrofuturism, right? This journey into the past through the lens of the future, I guess, or journey into the future through the lens of the past, you know, <laughs> however you want to put that. <laughs> we had discussed, right, that these films, though set in the future, reveal a great deal about the time in which they were actually made, right? And and I guess in a similar vein, you know, that's that's going to be a big part of what we are discussing Today, right, how how these films, both of which I think have a lot of merits in their own right, are made so much more compelling and interesting through the lens of the administration in which they were screened. Right. In the case of Continental Divide, as you've discussed, Marsh, we have Reagan and and, and really the beginning of yes, of Reagan's project for a sort of new America. Uh, and then Clinton's ascendancy, you know as the the king of neoliberalism in in uh, the 90s. So I was just like having a field day and I I, I know you both have quite a bit uh, that you have to, to to share with us. a lot of really interesting stuff. but I do want to say, in spite of that, too, and I think some of the departures that inevitably going to find between the administrations, there's a lot in common between these two films. Yes. So much in in common. And I think, starting perhaps with Reagan, the kind of emptiness at the heart of the American political system for the last, now what, 40 years or so? In that, regardless of the political party in power... There seems to be um, a very similar vibe, shall we say, for lack of a better term. So, so I think that's you know maybe for me like a, a very interesting kind of place to to start. In the case of Continental Divide, I I also want to say before we get too deep into just simply the presidents and how these films reflect on on those presidents. I'd never seen it before, never heard of it before, and I have to say, you know, we started this podcast with an episode on Chicago cinema, on movies set in Chicago. And I have to say, as a Chicagoan, with a certain amount of, like, pride, this... Is
0: now on my list of great Chicago movies. This movie had more Chicago representation than the film I picked for our Chicago episode, The Hunter. It 100% did.
2: <laughs> that's, <laughs> yeah. that's maybe not too hard, but <laughs> yeah. but yeah, you know, I mean, it's an incredible usage of our fair city. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and the Chicago persona, the idea of like a big Chicago man stuck <laughs> up in the cold, high altitude mountains um, is an extremely
1: funny concept to sort of like have the entire film lean on well both films are centered around characters who don't have a lot of experience outside of their home turf right and that really Mm -hmm. struck me the way that Uh, That's a recurring joke in Continental Divide is how provincial Suchak is. He's never left Chicago. He's never been anywhere. He's just a Chicago guy. And they really nail it. And I think there's a certain element like any of this stuff, like Belushi as auteur here because... You can tell his influence on the film for certain details and insistences on you know certain Chicagoisms, and he's quipping and improvising throughout, you know, being himself, which is very much yes, this Chicago guy. And so, in that regard, yeah, I mean, it, it really, yeah, it was really. Uh, Really nailed it for me, and I hadn't I hadn't heard of it or seen it either.
0: Yeah, I had only seen images from it from a really lousy John Belushi documentary that opened the Chicago Film Festival <laughs> a couple of years ago, and I remember when I had to to watch the film to just like quality check the the upload to the virtual platform, just like suffering through it. But there were moments such as seeing some some stray images from Continental Divide and seeing him geared in all that hiking equipment, all his John Belushi and backpacking gear is just, it's a sight to see and it's worth the price of admission alone. And that was really the, the only thing I was familiar with with this film. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. There was something about the way he moved through the Chicago streets in any of the scenes where he's just sauntering around town as the intrepid journo of the Sun Times, you know, that, that really made me reflect on like a, a sort of like Chicago gate you know a sort of Chicago walk Mm -hmm. that seems to me very different from a lot of like New York movies and the way you see people moving through the streets of New York and I really was like just just struck by how at home and obviously right this this is home to him this was home to him but at how comfortable he moved how confidently he moved through those streets.
1: Yeah, and it's like a caricature, but it's a caricature that I like, you know? Like it's it's sort of corny, but it's all pretty true, you know, in that in that sense, and so I appreciated it. You know, worth noting, it is the first film produced by amblin entertainment the steven spielberg production company and that's another thing that caught my eye when i was picking the film is the sort of implicit connection of course between you know spielbergism and reaganism you know in the 1980s in the sense right that those spielberg films were very much about nostalgia and reassurance Mm -hmm. and that was ronald reagan's message as well nostalgia and reassurance you know while yes gutting, you know, the government or whatever. And, you know, thinking about that, you know, I know Reagan was a huge fan of E.T. And I don't know if you guys have heard the story before, but Spielberg has told a story where they watched E.T. and then Reagan stood up and he said, uh, there are a number of people in this room who know that Everything on that screen is absolutely true. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I feel like any Chicago person watching Continental Divide would also stand up during the screening and say the exact same thing about what's happening on screen. That everything you see here, though it may be a caricature, it is all true. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a really endearing caricature. I think especially in the sequence when Ernie is just like strutting around town doing the walk that you're describing Andy and how everyone is just like calling out to him and just acknowledging how much they liked his column or just like, hey, great one this week. And it it really does somehow capture in this kind of cartoony way the spirit of the city or at least a certain idea of the city. Like that's not something you would see in a New York film. The idea that a city so big could also sometimes feel like a small town because it's modest and it has like this tighter knit group.
2: Yeah, especially where... You know, his life seems to be centered uh, in Chicago being the loop where you have all the most important buildings, certainly for a journalist covering the kind of beat that he's covering, the bars he's going to that that have, you know, guys from City Hall mixing with dudes right across the river at the the sun times building you know they they're drinking in the same places they're they're buying newspapers from the same uh corner guys who are selling their their copies of the sun times and the tribune and and their nudie magazines as well you know (laughs) but yeah there there is that that sense of like familiarity that everyone seems to at least the players that that were introduced to yeah they all seem to to know each other and and certainly know of each other and and he is yes a local celebrity you know Suchak isn't just some sort of page seven uh, byline guy no 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 this is front page stuff and as Marsh mentioned the film really opens with with kind of establishing you know the core of of what he is obsessed with as a as a as an investigative reporter which is Alderman Yablano played. By one of my favorite character a actors, a legend. Yeah, Val Avery. For me, it's this like city council meeting. Oh yeah, where the chairman of the subcommittee has the most beautiful Chicago accent you will ever hear. It's <laughs> it's like a dialect coach should just use that clip of this this like subcommittee guy just running through like the agenda and be like, yeah. That's a fucking Chicago City Councilman right there, you
1: know. That is correct, Alderman 9B and C, in view of which, gentlemen, the contract renewal, which is under this subcommittee's consideration, is
3: at this time for the leasing of specialized equipment, therefore not uh, subject to competitive bidding. Uh, I accordingly should like to recommend approval of uh,
1: contract 44KG, City of Chicago Ordinance P-17, to Metro Machine Tools Incorporated. Now, as to the matter of the queries raised by the Sherman Committee, item number one had to do with their tax exemption claim, and
3: uh, item two, the political principle that a city hall connection exists uh, with Metro's attorneys at law. So, after due consideration, we feel satisfied that all three queries are applicable. And while
2: it's not I think entirely clear what exactly is going on, the kind of corruption. You know, it seems to have something to do with real estate and
1: building codes and stuff like that. There's a lot of like words thrown out in a very, you know, kind of, again, a throwback to the classic Hollywood journalist movie where like jargons just being tossed out and like, you're trying to keep up, you know? Yeah. City contracts
2: and stuff like that, you know? But I, I did think when I was watching it on a certain level, that I have to imagine Reagan would have been pretty amused looking at something like that and and thinking to himself, of course, Chicago, this democratic cesspool, look Mm -hmm. at how corrupt they all are, you know? (laughs) I think he would have just smirked at that, you know? Well,
1: and you know, later in the film when... Belushi first meets Blair Brown, the doctor. She she says, uh, you know, I don't want to talk to a reporter. Reporters are parasites. And I, at that moment, I just saw Reagan's face just beaming the biggest grin ever because of course you know reagan's attacks on the press go uh, way back to the 60s and in many ways was a uh, more harsh uh, to the press than even nixon was in many ways uh, so yeah
0: him jotting down in his diary delightful comedy it was those <laughs> types of
1: moments that he found truly delightful yes oh yeah <laughs> But yeah, I mean, you know, on that note, like it is a it is a nostalgic kind of you know fantasy uh, picture of Chicago that I think we all agree is is awesome. So we're we're buying in here, you know. To uh, it gets
0: the gauntlet Chicago stamp of <laughs> approval, you know. Oh yeah,
1: yeah. It really does. I mean, you got the Billy Goat in there. You got Ogilvy Transportation Center in there. I mean, it's it's good work. And, like, kudos to Apted as well. Like, he does have a sharp eye as an outsider. I, I think that's an interesting perspective. He's, like, you know, this British guy, and he's, like... Clearly enchanted by Chicago, just as he's enchanted by the magnificent Rocky Mountains, you know? Um, So it does have that kind of spirit of, yeah, a filmmaker from another country, like, looking at America. And I was thinking, too, you know, this is, like, around the time of Thief. I wonder if there was any uh, crossover. (laughs)
2: Cross-pollination going on there between the Belouche brothers. Yeah. Yeah, there
0: are moments in the nighttime sequences nighttime exteriors in Chicago in Continental Divide that look straight out of Thief. Mm-hmm. Just Primarily just because of the type of lights that were in Chicago at the time, of course. But it looks like similar film stock. It's like as if we were suddenly transported into that film. Yeah. And that's one thing that is, is you know, as far as like cinematic depictions
2: of Chicago are concerned, like that is one thing that that is almost now uh, completely gone. You know, that, that old sodium vapor lighting of Chicago at night. Like, now everything's like, they've been phasing in all the LEDs. And, you know, you, you, you really, when you see movies like this, notice it. You know, that the yeah. reflection is, is very white instead of that kind of orange and at times green, depending on where you were, you know, uh, mm-hmm. glow of, 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 our, of our city at night. But, Marsh, you know, you just hit on something that, that again, I think is, is also really important for the film, which is that, you know, while we also get that, that outsider perspective from from Apted sort of looking at Chicago, the movie's also about an outsider's perspective of the rest of the country mm-hmm. on a certain level, you know, outside of the city, which is, you know, when Belushi is, is sort of thrown out of the city, that he's sort of looking at, you know, primarily in the film, like the Rockies with baby's eyes, like newborn's eyes, you know, that, that he himself hasn't really seen America, you know? He's been so obsessed with Chicago and Chicago City politics that perhaps through his life, he has lost the the bigger picture here.
1: You know, there is a really good scene early on, you know, in the Chicago sequence when he gets a knife pulled on him in an alley by two guys, and as they're mugging him, they realize... It's Suchak, the, the famous columnist. Uh, and it is actually a very endearing and, and funny little bit they have, where, like, they continue mugging him, but they're apologetic because they really like his column, you yeah. know?
2: And they start talking, like, neighborhood <laughs> politics with him, yeah. too. Yeah. You
1: know? <laughs> he's, like, asking what gang they're in and what neighborhood they're from and starts, like, writing it down, you know? That's got a really great, like, throwaway Belushi
0: improv line, too, where they, you know, they ask him, like, hey, got a light? And he's like, yeah, sure. And they pull the knife, and he goes, "Well, here I have the whole book." You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's another
2: thing, like a, a very, very sharp script. You know, now it is so clear to me that it owes its. I guess it's influence really too, like the screwball comedies of the past. And a lot of those kinds of throwaway asides that, that, you know, have so much of the humor in the film, you know, it's, it's the line, but then it's the line that's delivered right after it, almost like under the breath
1: that, you know, really like adds the punch to it. And Kazdin claims that, the script was, of course, even better than the movie. It was more <laughs> Hawksian. They they dulled it a little bit, you know. But of course, I think. That's what happens when you get a, a star like Belushi, a comedic force like Belushi. He's not just going to read a Lawrence Kasdan script. He's going to no. bring his own thing to the table. And I think Apted is trying to balance that, you know. Yeah.
2: Just because what I know about Belushi is that, you know, he was—he could be notoriously difficult to work with in that regard. If he didn't think yeah. something was funny, you know, he, he simply would, like, revolt. Uh, he would—he he wouldn't <laughs> he wouldn't, like, give— Uh, his full energy to it so I can imagine working with someone like him comes with so much baggage and also at a time like that in his life uh when he was already kind of starting to
0: go off the deep end yeah, yeah yeah
2: but but it's in spite of that it's it is an incredibly i was surprised an incredibly like lucid performance
0: on yes. his part you know yeah. yeah he's very much on the wavelength of of what that film was like going for in terms of its screwball vibe um, which felt like slightly different than the type of comedic performances he usually gives i think in in other films i do want to mention though with that scene when he is mugged that had one of the moments that surprised me the most about the film that also made me surprised that Reagan would have found it so delightful. Maybe this was like a little bit of a thorny moment that made him shift in his seat a little bit. And that was the fact that as Belushi's getting mugged and he's asking about the neighborhood, then the cops pull up and they and they flee. And Ernie, you know, says like, ah, eh, you know, I'll, I'll cover for you. I'll give you a few minutes here. Just like, give me, uh, give me my stuff, some of my stuff back. And when they flee, that's when the cops then reveal themselves to be the true thugs. And they're there on behalf of Yablanowitz and they beat him up. And I thought that that was a pretty biting look at the CPD, you know, And I and I'm surprised. You know, I guess maybe if as you're talking about this read where... Reagan sees Chicago as this democratic cesspool of corruption. Maybe that's how he chose to interpret that moment. But at the same time, I was surprised that a film like this from the Reagan era had that moment of anti-cop sentiment in
1: it. Well, if it's not anti-cop if the right person's being beat, you know? And I think, <laughs> uh, you know, Suchak's a Democrat and Reagan uh, is fine with that. You know, we saw what that's he did true. to Berkeley in, you know, 66, 67.
0: Yeah, I guess Brian Perhaps calling it anti-cop might be a bit generous, but it was still a moment that surprised. But
1: they're, me. Yeah, they're revealed to be corrupt and working for the the shady alderman.
2: Well, and you know, my my cousin, uh, who I've I think I've told you both about, who who spent basically his entire adult life working for the DNC on the national level, he always told me that you know, as far as they're concerned, historically Chicago has always been perceived politically as like its own country. Right. (laughs) So I think, you know, Reagan is just like, that's fucking Chicago
1: for you, you know, like, sure. <laughs> that's, that's that town. Yeah, I mean, like, there yeah. are a lot of self-deprecating jokes about our violence throughout the film by Belushi, mm-hmm. constantly making light of, of everything, you know. Hey, you walk down the street, you get mugged, you know, like, always uh, sort of bringing that up. So some things never change uh, yeah. in that regard.
0: But yeah, it is after this the scene and then that threat from from the alderman that he decides to, to go west on assignment to, to cover um, this, this woman who's staying up in the mountains in the Rockies. And it is a funny introduction of Belushi into the Rockies as he's being led along by a guide uh, who mentions that, oh, these are just merely bumps in the ground. We haven't even reached the mountains yet. The more Belushi is complaining and becoming fatigued as he's got all this gear on him. I did appreciate, though, from, you know, uh, the moment
2: he leaves the city how many really good cigarette jokes uh, we had as, as he realizes you know the farther he gets away from civilization the harder it's going to be for him to to resupply his Marlboro Reds and there's a really great bit in the mountains when they're climbing up and uh, he's huffing and puffing you know he's like going to die he's just like really you know Belushi's just struggling up that mountain and then he on a break decides he he needs a he needs a smoke break. You know, he's gonna have a cigarette. And uh, the guide, you know, this crusty old man's like, I don't know if I'll do that Their partner. The air's pretty thin up here. And he says something like, You know, Every day of my life, a jerk for the last twenty or thirty years has been trying to tell me quit. And as he takes a drag, he just immediately passes <laughs> out. Like, <laughs> I really. There's a lot of good cigarette gags that are going to develop, uh, and mm-hmm. we sort of like chart his his like rising levels of anxiety as his supply goes
0: down. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's right after that too when he wakes up in a great moment of irony where a pair of bears steal some of his remaining cigarettes and it's funny seeing a big you know chicago guy at the town of the chicago bears seeing some bears and just like quivering in his boots and praying to god that these bears will spare him of course he's forgetting that black bears are just like puppies and if you just stomp
1: they'll run away as was what happens when the old man does return and then he's just a ticking time bomb until he runs out of marlboros you know and and respect you know i felt that journey (laughs) oh dude absolutely and like there's like a hard count,
2: you know, yes. like he says. He's like, I have
1: 10, you yeah. know, and it's going down from there. Yes,
2: and like you're charting. I mean, he's like, I had two, and it's like, oh, shit, he's down to, he's down to eight. Now nah, That's going to be rough. And you're thinking, two weeks, he's got eight smokes left.
1: My goodness. And he's been smoking in just about every single scene of the oh, movie yeah, up constantly. to this point. constantly. Yeah. And when we get to the Rockies, we also get the lush cinematography of John Bailey, everything is like primary colors and glowing and bright like a Hollywood film, you know and it's like, yeah, it's it's pretty pretty beautiful stuff when they get out there and they're really hiking up there you know it's like it's a serious uh, feat of uh, you know Belushi like losing a bunch of weight and being in like good enough shape (laughs) to do all those scenes man because there are some
2: very perilous moments up there where he's dangling on like the edge of a fucking mountain with with a massive backpack on his back you know and I was like oh my god I I really did like feel tense at a certain point, thinking he could have died. There. Yeah, and especially <laughs>
1: because he's like, Yeah, just like a, a Chicago guy smoking, and like I was like, you know, very much that could <laughs> be <laughs> me yeah, in many yeah. ways. <laughs> yeah. You know?
0: I will say one of the least relatable moments in the entire film is when he does finally arrive at that cabin, and it almost <laughs> feels like he's deflated. He sees it and he's like, Oh man, and he just like finds the whole prospect grim. And I mean, looking at that cabin, it just looked like Alex Absolute paradise. I couldn't even imagine looking at that thing and not thinking like, oh, here's home. Like, maybe I will stay up here in the Rockies and, and forget about Chicago.
1: He's a true blue city boy, my man. You yeah, know? he is. Yeah. And he uh, breaks into the cabin because no one's home. And thus begins The tumultuous two weeks that he spends up in the mountains as he's laying low. And from there it becomes a romantic comedy as we're introduced to Dr. Nell Porter and she is a strong intelligent, independent woman, bit of a recluse, bit standoffish and why shouldn't she be you know? Uh, Especially with this guy just breaking into her cabin it develops along the lines that you would expect, right? Where there's a mutual antagonism and then there's a mutual appreciation along with that antagonism as it grows and develops over those two
0: weeks She really does give him the benefit of the doubt initially too which I found quite surprising you know she kind (laughs) of knocks him over with her big stick and I'm like if I was a woman and I saw Belushi just like in my cabin I I would freak out I would say like look at this This there's this cigarette starved maniac who's just like huffing and puffing and like really worn out Um, but her first impression is she tells him like I'm just going to assume that you're an inexperienced hiker who has lost his way and we're going to work through this, you know, and get you on your way out of here. She is uh, incredibly
2: hospitable, especially considering the fact that almost immediately he is misbehaving, I should say. is putting it lightly. I mean, he is like, I think almost like the next day, like trying to like kiss her, you know, like just going in for kisses and she's like... What the fuck, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and this happens quite a bit. It is it is in that sense very dated in its oh, depiction yeah. of like circa 1980-81 mating rituals, shall we say.
1: Yeah. It's like 1936, you know? Oh, my goodness.
2: To be fair, I kind of feel like Clark Gable is even a little bit more of a gent sure. than, uh, <laughs> yeah. than he was,
0: you know? At least Clark is kind of a dashing figure, you know? Yeah, Belushi's definitely a bore in those scenes as he's, yeah. like, pawing over her.
1: And I do I do think the film struggles, you know, with that a little bit with, with these sequences, right? It is kind of uneven, and he is, yeah, I mean in any realistic setting or or film you would reject all of this but the film is very clearly like this is a comedy this is a fantasy you know and and obviously that's yeah that's an excuse but it's really not you know trying to do anything profound right it's trying to be this broad comedy. And and it's very bizarre when, yes, he's like pouting uh, because she's oh, yeah. refusing his advances. Like yeah. Kyle was insulting him, like her, you know, kind of hurling insults at the screen uh, <laughs> throughout because it's just like... This guy's a huge fucking baby, you oh, know. Yeah. And of course, it's supposed to be humorous, but some of it isn't. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's the same thing with Molly when she was watching this. Anytime he was making these like casually misogynistic, or even often he was saying like homophobic slurs. She was like, "Yeah, Reagan probably loved this." <laughs> oh yeah, you know. You know, and because yeah, that's when his riffing is at its worst. When it is very revealing about like what was considered casual comedy in 1981. When he is sort of just let loose and he is i mean he's saying stuff like you mentioned like i gotta get this broad in a bowling alley you know as if he was like finally gonna prove something to her
1: show her you know and it's like
0: that stuff's kind of grim i don't know (laughs) i thought it was a bit yucky
1: yeah of course no of course it is but but
2: it's
0: also like an
2: integral part of of the events that are are to unfold you know it isn't just you know this sort of like yeah this is just a guy being clumsy as as nell does explain to him why he's failing, you know, and it has something to do with nature. Uh, and that he doesn't understand nature at all, so it does become this. Yeah, in a in a sort of very kind of Hollywood fantasy way, this this bigger metaphor, perhaps, right?
0: Yeah, and it is a, it is an authentic portrayal of like a big Chicago newspaper man in 1981. So it, it is in character. <laughs> oh, yeah. I guess it's not surprising in any way. I've heard the stories of Ebert uh, around that time.
2: Yeah. You know? Hanging out at the, uh, you know, village tap. I've heard, I've heard the, ta- I've heard the tales. You know?
1: <laughs> yeah. So, like a, you know, like an old Howard Hawks screwball. You have at the center of this, right? Her occupation, which is. Bald eagle conservation observation. It's kind of you know unclear. She does give a lecture on bald eagles towards the end of the film, but once she warms up to Suchak, uh, she starts taking him out on these excursions to teach him things about nature and eagles. Yeah,
2: it's very very quick in their in their time together. I think it's like. Almost immediately, when when he's sort of even saying that like this, this is just a bunch of goddamn trees and rocks and shit, you know. He's sort of like, "What the fuck?" Like, yeah, this sucks. Like you're saying, Ryan, when he when he first even sees the cabin, it's like, "Look at this dump," you know. Yeah. This ain't the Green Mill, you know. Like, look at this shithole. <laughs> uh, and and she says to him, "Come on, I'm taking you to church." And she grabs him yep. and drags him up. On top of one of these peaks to show him the oldest church in America, she says. But it's like also, again, in that moment where I really was like, of of course reagan loves this shit yeah you know? like of course he does yes the oldest church in america you know the 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 peaks nature the 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 untapped potential of this great land that is being abused and and uh unappreciated by all these city slickers yeah, <laughs> city slickers
1: and blue
3: state <laughs>
2: slobs
3: you <laughs> <know>? <laughs>
0: <laughs> very early on in that, on his like lessons of, of bald eagles and her eagle research and going out on these excursions with him, there's an incident where there's a pair of hunters who are trying to shoot them down. And she reacts with such a fervent rage, she, like, completely loses it. She knocks them down. She smashes their gun, and they're like, hey, that's a $900 shotgun, you know, that you just broke there. And she, you know, she really lays it thick on them. And I was like, damn. Yes, obviously, like, hunting down eagles is horrible, but I was like, man, like, were the stakes that high? And that's when I did a little bit of research, and I didn't even realize that at the time they were shooting, I mean, there were less than 2,000 breeding pairs of eagles in the entire country. And now there's well over 300,000. I take it for granted. I mean, Molly and I go driving around Washington. We, we see eagles almost every weekend, you know, but that wouldn't have been the case in, in 1981. So I could certainly understand um her rage. Well, thank Ronald Reagan for that, my friend. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and she, yeah, she pretends to be like a federal agent as she's like stripping these guys and like reading them their rights. And interestingly, in the scene uh, preceding when she takes down the hunters, she's shooting the eagles on a bolex. And so we get the two kinds of shooting in these scenes juxtaposed, Mm -hmm. her shooting on film for educational purposes and these bastards just shooting at eagles for no reason, you know?
2: I I think really then when we get into this, this section of the film, you have this sense of like the divide. A divided nation, divided peoples, you know, because he is, yes, so clearly this, this, you know, guy, this Chicago Democrat guy, you know, yeah. and she like her politics are never a- explicitly said. They don't really get into like politics, but I did sort of view her and I think maybe somebody like Reagan might have even seen her as a sort of like symbol of the right, you know, in this sense of, you know, being a little bit less urban, a little bit more rugged,
1: self-reliant,
2: self-reliant, and isolationist even. Yeah. All that stuff. Right. And, and it's like, how can we bring them together? Well, look at the Eagles. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, cause that really does start to build up between the two of them, you know, the sense of also, what is great about our cities and what is great about people like him? You know, it's a very, like, pragmatic kind of view of of unity that that is developing here. And I, I do think for someone like Reagan, you know, in his kind of, you could argue, maybe kind of like an adolescent view of America, the beautiful, and all this stuff, and can't we all just... Just remember what's most important here. You know, it isn't about
1: welfare.
2: It shouldn't be about the goddamn, you know, hospitals I'm, I'm gutting or whatever, you know. Look at the eagles, you know. <laughs> like...
1: Absolutely. Despite the fact that, yeah, he's, you know, Hollywood scum. Exactly. You know? and there was always that uh, irony to, to all of that and his you know projections and fantasies as they they go along with it but yeah it it is interesting you know and and he watched this film uh fairly early on in, in his presidency as you mentioned and it is around the time of this film's release that reagan's been going around quoting raiders and shooting down the air traffic controllers. Uh, Mm. So that's like part of what's going on in like the August before he's watching this film in October. Uh, And he had a very busy uh, fall of 1981. Uh, He watched a lot of new movies. I mean, they watched a lot of old movies, right? Because he has actually of course, kind of like impeccable classic Hollywood taste. You know, he's the only president who's watched Anthony Mann westerns in the White House, you know,
2: <laughs> I think it's I think it's really interesting because again, sort of a throwback to a very different era, a very different era of romantic comedy and romance in 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 cinema. You know, it does have a very kind of classical feel to it, in spite of the time in which it was made and and certainly even for someone like Belushi. This is a very contained kind of presence he puts forward here. It's a very understated performance for a guy who was who was known for being extremely important in pushing American comedy
0: to a more extreme and, and expressive kind of antics, I guess you could say. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's funny, too, when the film, like, shifts gears a little bit when they go on on one of these hikes and he does get injured and she needs to take care of him. And there are all these physical limitations placed on John Belushi. He can't be rowdy and expressive and moving his body this way and that. You know, she ties him to a sled and makes it like an ice ice sled underneath so he can be carried around on the mountains. So he's like, yeah, he's very limited in his range. So he is he has to kind of express himself in a different way and it is somewhat of an understated performance from him it's it's funny too on that hike when we were watching molly and i and they were going on like this big eagle expedition and they're going through the rockies in colorado and then when they started setting up their tent and we were looking i was like wow like i wonder where this is this doesn't look like super familiar uh, in terms of colorado like looks a little bit different and then they like wake up the next day and they like open up the tent and they climb out and Mount Rainier is behind them in Washington. And I was like, what on earth? Like, What a long hike. They must have been <laughs> hiking for months. But yeah, it is odd. I, I looked up and there is like a significant chunk of the film that is shot in Crystal Mountain in Washington. They shot like a ton of stuff out over here. It seems like it would be something that would be rather expensive to move production all the way to Washington, especially since it's not set here. But it might have something to do, I think, with the Eagles if they were lacking, I think, in terms of accessibility to getting some of those eagles on film. They needed to go all the way out there. Interesting. I didn't even think of that. Yeah, I just assumed
1: it was tax breaks.
0: (laughs) It could be that, too. I may be just adding a lot. It was funny, when I looked up the trivia, too, because I was curious about them shooting in Washington, it was at Crystal Mountain, which is like a ski resort, and that shot of Mount Rainier when they're climbing out of the tent, the camera crew and everyone, they were on the patio of like a hotel, like a swanky ski resort (laughs) hotel that was just a mere feet from the So it's funny, I do actually think they did a really great job of evoking wilderness and as if they were in extremely remote settings. But no, they Belushi still had all his creature comforts.
1: It was all a fantasy the whole time. (laughs) Damn. Uh, I do want to talk about briefly the the complication that arises in their developing relationship as one day Suchak follows uh, Nell out into the wilderness when he's told not to. And he discovers that she's having uh, wild nature sex with uh, a mountain man who is sort of hanging around the mountain, being a mountain man.
2: Who was introduced a bit earlier yes.
1: as Possum, right? Isn't that his name? <laughs> yes. Yeah. He's known as yeah. Possum,
2: where he seems to be uh, spear fishing, I think is what he's doing, and then at a certain point, uh, kills an elk with his bare hands. Yes. He sees her after spear burning all his, you know, advances, uh, run off to go, yeah, have some some hanky-panky with possum. Yeah,
1: it is kind of a comical, like, cosplay, you know, because we're seeing it through Belushi's point of view where it's like this, oh, he's attacking her, like it's this animalistic thing, but, you know, he just chases her into the meadow and then they're just, like, giggling and making out, right? And so that comes to a boil, like, shortly thereafter as... Suchak is attacked at the cabin by the mountain man who throws a knife at him. But the fight is quickly resolved when Suchak learns that the mountain man is actually Max Birnbaum, former NFL player who left it all to live a simpler life the Brooklyn behemoth
2: himself.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, of course, Suchak uh, has a mutual admiration uh, for him as this famous football player, and Birnbaum has a mutual affection for him as the famous columnist who, of course, you know, writes about sports and all that stuff as a Chicago guy. And so they're, like, trying to explain to, to the good doctor, like, you don't understand. This guy's like a fucking legend. It's like, no, you don't understand. This guy's a fucking legend. And she's just like, she's annoyed. It's a a real dude's rock moment (laughs) in the film,
3: you
2: know?
0: It really is. Yeah, Yeah, as
2: they start bonding over their shared life stories, you know, they, they, they have this really great bonding moment. But right after that, you know, Max is like getting ready to leave or whatever, and he's more or less like, hey, I kind of feel like you really like this guy. Hey, yeah, we had our fun, and that's cool, and maybe we can have fun again, but, like, you go do your thing. I don't care. I'm not jealous, you know? Then he's just sort of, like,
1: saunters off into <laughs> his own, you know, to just, like, live his, live his truth, you know? And so with the mountain man out of the picture... Nell and Suchak's relationship gets a little closer, although he, of course, is, uh, you know, still a little forward in his advances. And that's when she, of course, tames him, or at least teaches him to uh, understand nature a little better. And that's, you know, the character trajectory of the movie, right? He's this narrow-minded city slicker, uh, and now he's going to learn, you know, empathy for the first time at age 33. Ultimately, this builds up to a point where, of course, he gets mauled by a lion and then they're in love. This ends his two weeks, as I do think the film, very interestingly, kind of leaves it as a cliffhanger. Suchak's back in Chicago, although the vibes are off. He's got a walking stick. He's unshaven. He's not interested in reporting. He's doing his walk through all of his his Chicago
0: haunts, but... Yeah. His mind is still in the mountains. Right. He's <laughs> yeah. he's very haunted himself.
1: He fell for an eagle freak, as Alan <laughs> Garfield says.
0: You know, as I had mentioned that I found that the moment where he calls the cabin a dump, the the least relatable moment of the film. It was his return to Chicago with his mind still in the Rockies. Uh, I found that to be one of the most relatable moments of the film, just me specifically. I mean, I love Chicago. and I love it with all my heart. It's the greatest city in the world. But we go on trips, <laughs> is typically to, you know, to go hiking, to go out in the mountains. And it, it is that when you land back and you're walking through the big, loud city, you know, sometimes it's exciting, but sometimes you feel like John Belushi and you're still cradling your walking stick as you, you're just <laughs> going through the motions and thinking about when you can get back onto those beautiful, high alpine Plains, you know. Yeah. Yeah, a prisoner—not
1: relatable at all. Yeah, prisoner of the
0: (laughs) prisoner
2: of the grid system once again. Yeah, and and his editor, as you mentioned, is is himself very very also uh, perturbed. Yeah, he's at wit's end. Yeah, he needs the star columnist to get back to work. You know, to get over this maybe breakup. You know, this this uh, this sense of of you know
1: being lovelorn, whatever, and get back on the Yablana beat. That's right. And that happens when uh, one of the characters who was introduced in like the first 15 minutes returns in uh, the form of having been murdered. And this spurs Suchak's re-interest in the crusade against the corrupt alderman as he realizes that this accidental death of a city worker on a fire escape was in fact, of course, the shady work of Yablanovich.
0: He's got the fedora
1: back on. He's got, yeah, he's got the hat back on. There's
0: an extremely funny visual representation of his fanaticism with the alderman being reignited. And that's when his desk uh, is like, that's surrounded by beautiful, like professional photos taken with him uh, at the cabin with Nell posing in their flannel and they're looking really nice. And he just takes photos that are about the same size of Yablanovich and is just placing them. Yeah, <laughs> In front of all the photos. So instead of his lovely little mountain life, he's surrounded by the, the mean
1: mug of the alderman yeah. he's trying to and take down. they're like down. stakeout photos too, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like shot on a telephoto lens for like hiding behind a bush, you know? That sequence is amazing because it's, you know, again, a throwback to the classic Hollywood montage style where we're getting his columns and we're cutting and seeing the headlines. And I did really like let out a huge laugh in that montage, when his apartment is blown up yeah. <laughs> and it explodes, and then it like dissolves to the column, and the column is room wanted quiet tenant <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah.
2: check won't be beat, you know no way that was
0: that was such an inspired joke that I like had to check that that didn't happen to Mike Royko and I like didn't know about it <laughs> because just that article headline is so funny and felt so Chicago that I was like doubting it's like did this happen is this true yeah. yeah yeah it was it was Rupert Murdoch
2: Rupert Murdoch blew up uh, Royko's apartment <laughs> when, when he left to go to the trip
1: or whatever <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) and so ultimately yeah he you know he he brings him down but of course it's not resolved yet because Dr. Nell Porter is in town giving a speech on bald eagles at the Field Museum. And despite uh, Alan Garfield's warnings... Uh,
0: yeah, it's really funny when his boss is just like, you're not thinking about going to that lecture, are you? And he said, like, oh, no, 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 I'm not. It's like, yeah, because you better not. You better not fucking think about going there. He's like, no, oh, I really won't. I'm not. I'm not going to go. But by gone and he goes.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, he does. They reunite... And he sort of convinces her to hang out in Chicago for an extended period of time in which she gets very quickly depressed. Uh, And it's because she's not in her natural habitat. You know, he's got to think a little more about nature on this one again.
0: He should have taken her to, like... La Bar Woods or hung out more at the lake. She, she probably would have liked all that stuff.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Take her to the Garfield Observatory, you exactly, know? Exactly, yeah. Her a little bit. It is also this interesting kind of uh, inversion where now, you know, she's the fish out of water. and right. And he's he's taking her through through the ecosystem of the big city, right? So he's kind of explaining to her the laws of nature in in Chicago.
3: To live in Chicago, you have to learn that you only survive by understanding your opponent, Dr. Porter. First, you have to remember the number,
2: 911. That's the police. Now, the line will be busy because the rest of Chicago is trying to survive just like you are. Second, never touch anyone on the street. They'll think you need help and they'll kill you. For God's sakes, never smile at anyone. They'll think you're gay, in which case, don't call 911. They'll book you for an obscene phone call. Fourth, never cross the street when you hear an ambulance coming. It's very dangerous, because it's you it's trying to run down. And there's one last thing to know, very important. It's about money. Never carry any in your purse. Keep your folding money in your shoe. You can always tell how rich a person is by the way he limps, like this. (laughs) This is a great town. It's got everything. And so there is this, this tension that, that builds and reaches a climax when a decision has to be
1: made. Is she going to stay in Chicago or is she going to leave? And this is all foreshadowed when Nell describes the mating habits of eagles in her lecture.
3: First, they chase each other. Uh, circling, dipping, twisting, screaming, testing. And then... Then they come together, their talons locking. Inseparable? For a short, very happy time, yes. And they fly that way? No, uh, not together. They begin to fall, plunging and tumbling down and down. Which sounds dangerous. But thrilling. Oh, huh? Yes. And then? Then, when they're very near the ground, about to be smashed, they separate open their wings, and soar on the air currents. Alone? Each alone. That's the only way they can fly.
1: And that's all there is?
3: Unless they do it again.
1: And so that sets up, you know, the the big uh, third act Amtrak finale. (laughs) Uh, Ultimately, she gets on an Amtrak, and we have this big, like, parting, you know, scene, but he can't leave her and so he is on the train and is like eh, well, one more stop you know and then it very quickly becomes an extended gag where he is buying one <laughs> one stop tickets all
0: the way to Wyoming pretty expensive one-stop tickets too it was 45 bucks to just to get to iowa real pros know it's always more expensive to buy your damn t- ticket
1: on the train you know you gotta, well, you, yeah. gotta
2: <laughs> you gotta buy it at the platform you can't do that
1: you know it's
0: true that's
2: true and so
1: they put off you know this moment of departure and when they get to wyoming the film comes up with a wacky classic hollywood solution to the problem and that solution of course is is marriage. Yeah. At like a general store. At like a general store, (laughs) as the the train is like pulling out of the station. And they agree to, yeah, you know, be married, but live in different places. And the film concludes on a triumphant note, but it is an odd note. Well, there
2: is a continental divide between the two of them, Marsh, as you know. Yeah. For me, I was trying to watch this through to the best of my ability. Ronald Reagan's eyes, you yeah. know, America understand his
1: nature, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, thinking of it in this really like pragmatic and hopeful way for national unity that like, what is America? We're different, but we're together right, you know we're 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 separate, but but we're all unified still somehow by. By this thing, this the bald idea, <laughs> yeah, the ball, the bald. Look at the eagles, you know. That's the way I was sort of reading this ending. Yeah, you know, we can be married, right? All of us. You can be the city folk, and you can be the, the, you know, the the, the rugged individualist, you know, and and like we can all do our things and and be in our places,
1: but still be bound together. Uh, Under God, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah, you know, I wanted to share with you guys what brief insight we have into uh, what Reagan himself actually thought of the film. And so I want to share with you the October 10th, 1981 White House diary from Ronald Reagan, which he wrote after coming back from Camp David, where he was when he watched The Continental Divide. And so he's recapping The weekend. He writes... Road every morning. They have cleared a trail out of the camp into the National Forest, past Bessie Darling's Old Summer Hotel. Now a couple of stone walls and a chimney. She was murdered there in 1933. The trail adds much to the riding. Sunday looked like rain, so just rode around Camp David. Spent both afternoons doing homework and mail called Margaret Thatcher about sending a communications unit to help in the Sinai multiple nation force. She can't do it. Due to previous history, England would stand to lose their trade with moderate Arab nations, ran movies, and two hours of tape of Sadat Funeral, Our (laughs) our delegation with three times presidents highly regarded by Egypt. The movies were both delightful comedies, Paternity and the Great Divide. <laughs> now we're back in the White House. <laughs> Dude. Early
2: early onset Alzheimer's already kicking in. It sounds like, you know, Forget the title of the movie
1: you watched the fucking night before. Yeah, and it's it's confirmed that he watched the Continental Divide, but yeah, he (laughs) called it the wrong thing in the diary. And if you were wondering, Paternity is a Burt Reynolds, uh, you know, surrogate mother comedy. Oh
2: hell yeah!
1: So he had a little dual dose here: Belushi and Reynolds. Uh, delightful with two hours of Sadat's funeral. That's six hours of cinema.
0: The two genders, Kurt Reynolds and John Belushi. <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny, that you're bringing up the fact that there is this discrepancy with what Reagan uh, jotted down in his diary. There's a similar discrepancy in terms of our other film that we were discussing, Smoke Signals. Uh, according to the official record that was released uh, when I think it was Gizmodo, you know, went to ask for all of Bill Clinton's The Film Log using the Freedom of Information Act. Looking at all the list of films, one of them has no link because it's the title of a film that does not exist, and that is smoke Screen from 1998. And there's just <laughs> <laughs> no such film. And it was funny, I got a little nervous after I picked and I went back to that list because I saw Smoke Signals listed elsewhere, and I was like, oh, did I somehow fuck this all up? But no, you know, Chris Ayer on record, Bill Clinton watched... Smoke signals. But apart from, you know, the the director literally saying that Bill Clinton watched it, it's, it's very key looking at the day that Bill Clinton watched it. And that's when he watched it on July 8th, 1998. And it was clearly in prep for his big panel the next day when he was going to discuss affirmative action with a bunch of different figures uh, from the country, one of which was Sherman Alexie. And it was the first time that an, an indigenous person was given a platform like that on a panel of um, of the scale, essentially. And there's a, an amusing anecdote uh, when I was reading the July 9th article from the, the Los Angeles Times, where apparently during the discussion... Bill Clinton, in his usual style, Clinton tried to establish a bond with Alexei, telling him, my grandmother was one quarter Cherokee. <laughs> so yeah, pretty gnarly. <laughs> you know, Alexei had a laugh at the president's expense, but that when they asked him, you know, had other people ever engaged him in discussion about race in this way, Alexei said the conversation's often started with people coming up to him saying i am one part cherokee as if it was just <laughs> yeah, like this dude. thing that he was like constantly having to deal with it's no way to know exactly how bill clinton felt after the fact
1: i'm going to assume he didn't give a fuck yeah,
0: yeah. he de- so he definitely clearly, didn't uh, dude. Uh-uh. But it does make his subsequent—the movie he watched the next day kind of funny, imagining that he was mortified, and um, that's—he vegged out on July 10th watching Armageddon. Um, But maybe it was because his conscience was so clear he felt he could just have a party and watch uh, Armageddon with the— with Chelsea or something, I don't know. <laughs> President of Future Sport, another funny little tie in there. Um. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Slow down! <laughs> he puts you in the penalty box. Yeah, really
0: does. It really does seem like the Cherokee thing, though, is like a bizarre obsession of Clinton's. Because when I was doing like a little bit more research, I was pulling up Clinton's autobiography, and he mentions that his his interest in the Native Americans went back all the way to his early days in elementary school when he was at Ramble and how he would go to the the library and read for hours about books about Geronimo and Crazy Horse and Chief Joseph, you know. And he saw himself in all that somehow. He saw himself in all of this. He mentions, I never lost my interest in Native Americans or my feelings that they had been terribly mistreated. But amongst all of this other stuff, the one that really stuck out to me and relates most to this comment about him mentioning that he was like, has like, his grandmother has one quarter Cherokee blood in her. I read a, a section where, when he was considering running for the presidency in 1988, one of the reasons he apparently was a little concerned that it wouldn't work out was because of his age. And he mentions, if elected, I would be 42, about the same age as Theodore Roosevelt was when he was sworn in after President McKinley's assassination, and a year younger than John Kennedy when he was elected. But they had both come from wealthy, politically prominent families and had grown up in a way that made them comfortable in the circles of power. My two favorite presidents, Lincoln and FDR, were 51 when they took office, fully mature and in command of themselves and their responsibilities. 10 years later, on my 51st birthday, Al Gore gave me an account of the Cherokee Indian Nation's view of the aging process. The Cherokees <laughs> believe a man does not reach full maturity until he is 51. So, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack
3: there, but... Yeah. For you <laughs> know, people at home
0: who can't tell, I, I'm just sitting here
2: in silence shaking my head. <laughs> I don't think I've you know, ever been more disgusted to be an American <laughs> as I am right now by this, this fucking huckster dude. This guy, so,
0: you know. So hearing this, you know, hearing his like warm embrace of Al Gore, the Cherokee expert, and thinking about you know his own growing maturity, turning to you know into a fifty-one year old man. Uh, I have to put two and two together and think that Bill Clinton did, uh, in some perverse way, really like smoke signals. I think he probably found it to be a warm and yeah. and welcoming film. You I mean, know, it
1: has broad appeal. Yeah, it is a warm and funny and, and charming film yeah. in, in many regards. I yeah. mean, don't
0: don't let don't let Bill
2: Clinton be a reflection on the qualities of this film. Yeah. And, <laughs> oh, of course
1: not. And no, don't no. let its distributor Miramax and Harvey Weinstein. (laughs) Or perhaps the author of the book. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this film does have a triple canceled trifecta at the core of this film. If it's writer, distributor, and president.
0: (laughs) 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 But we here at the Gauntlet, we like Smoke Signals, the film, quite a bit. You know, it was very moving. I mean, I it has a lot of heart. And I mean, throughout just the way it engages with the idea of fatherhood and the way and forgiveness, it's just, yeah, it's all very moving while at the same time remaining a, a very light and joyful experience.
1: It's also got like an aggressively 90s vibe, you know? Yeah. Uh, I don't want to say Miramax Sheen, but I'll I'll say it. It's got a Miramax Sheen, you know, and it, it's got a 90s soundtrack to boot. And the whole thing is just... I don't know. To, you know, 1998 is a very vivid year for me. You know, I was like 13 or 14, so it really did just yeah transport me back to the late 90s in a in an interesting way. Despite obviously, yeah, I I don't have a lot in common with the characters on screen, but nevertheless, you know, that 90s vibe was radiating.
0: You know, a funny echo here in another way. These two films relate to each other. Michael Apted mm. is. An indigenous ally he made two films about the the incident with the fbi and leonard peltier on the pine ridge reservation in south dakota incident at oglala the documentary film about leonard peltier and uh the film thunderheart with val kilmer and graham green uh, exploring a, a you know a, a, like a veiled similar event
2: you know i um quite a fan of of road films, I sort of like to break road films down into kind of like two categories that there are in in a very kind of classical hollywood way a lot of road films to me as they really started to 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 blossom and really kind of almost became a genre i think in like the 70s you know i often look at at the 70s road films as this sort of reflection on america losing its way in the 60s you know and into the 70s and and of course the the sense of failure in in, in vietnam and just this sort of cultural kind of loss and malaise that set in. And so a lot of road films are about beginning with something lost and finding it along the way, right? You have that. But on the flip side, there's a more, I think, uh, downbeat or disruptive experience you get in road films where something found throughout the journey is ultimately lost along the way, where people just sort of continue to get lost. And in a weird way, this film kind of does both, I think. You know, that there is a sense of of discovery and growth, but there's also, you know, as the film progresses, a sense of, of losing something,
1: of letting something go. To me, it's like you know, it's less goal-oriented than your your average Hollywood film, you know, made by gringos or whatever. Like, it is more poetic and diffuse, you know? It doesn't all build up to this single, you know, revelation. There are revelations, but uh, again, like, this film is about questions of identity and and it's a film that reflects on itself and history and time through the way that it interweaves almost seamlessly at times the 70s and the 90s and of course implies a whole lot more in the storytelling employed in the film. Because Thomas, as he grows up, is, uh, yeah, you know, fancies himself a kind of medicine man or storyteller in a naive way. And I guess what I'm getting at is, like, both of the characters have ideas about who they are that... Are shattered in this film and aren't necessarily put back together uh, in a complete or whole way.
0: Does have a really strong introduction as it develops the community that both Thomas and Victor live in, the Kirdalen Reservation. It has like a great flourish where the poet and musician and activist John Trudell is um, playing a man running uh, like a radio station k-r-e-z he plays randy and as randy is sort of like giving his talk on the town given the status update there's like all these great little moments where he checks in with another man who's like hanging out by the highway giving like oh what's the traffic report and he's just sitting on the edge of the reservation looking at an empty road acknowledging you know the one or two trucks that may have passed by that day Um, and then reflecting on how the clouds remind them of different animals that they've encountered or just like stories in their lives and it is like a very rich, detailed look at all the different members of the town and we get a strong sense of like how everyone relates to each other and we also get a very strong sense of our two lead characters who thomas who does fancy himself as carrying on the oral tradition and you know he's very proper he's he's often mocked for his suit that he walks around wearing his little suit and he's got his big glasses and he's very earnest and he loves like sharing stories even to even to a fault as he's like kind of like driving everybody nuts but then victor you know he's tough He's stoic. He's a basketball player. And he doesn't mind stomping around Thomas, you know. Victor is more of like the proud figure. And it's even pointed out
2: early on in the film, right, that it's in his very name. He's named Victor to be a winner, right? That's that's in his mm-hmm. core, right? It's this idea, Victor, the winner. And yet Victor is, as we discover, like somebody that is, is struggling against this, perhaps pressure or perception and seems to really shun this part of him, even if he is, you know, a, a good basketball player or, you know, perceived as perhaps the the stronger of the two, the more warrior-like. Uh, I think even, you know, that word is, is used in describing him compared to to Thomas. Uh, and yet Thomas is so much more, it would seem, in touch with his community on a certain level you know even if he is kind of this comic relief type figure or or himself at times like leaning into a caricature of Native American identity and mythology and folklore Victor has a chip on his shoulder and and seems very uncomfortable in his own skin
0: absolutely their relationship which like forms the backbone of this film is like them constantly challenging each other's Identities in a way, or the way they like perceive themselves um, within their own community, and it's it, that contentious. Relationship is detailed in these flashbacks that are woven into the film in such an incredible way. Um, the way this film slips back and forth between time was something I wasn't expecting, with like my limited knowledge of just what this film was and like my familiarity with it. But the way it drifts into the past, whether that's I like I feel like I have to describe one of these moments so people have an idea of what it's like, because it's it's really inventive. There's like a moment where Thomas and Victor are having an argument in a convenience store, and in Victor storms out and we get this shot where now we're outside and we're looking in and we see the adult Thomas watching Victor leave and the camera tilts down and we see now that Victor is a child and we're back in the 70s and then the scene continues with both of them as children and both of them getting in an argument and that happens so often in the film the way that there are even times where they're looking at their younger selves within the same frame as we like move back and forth between the 70s and the 90s and it was an extremely clever way of i think hopping around between time mm-hmm. and it felt very like it very natural
1: Yeah, and it like just adds to the the whole like mythic quality of the film. Because I mean, we should even mention that in the opening, right? You do get this 1976 fire sequence with Thomas's kind of grandiose sort of voiceover or whatever, you know, very poetic, where he talks about the connection between him and Victor being babies that were saved from this horrible fire. And so they're bonded forever. And because of that and what happened after that, and he says, right, they're, they're children born of flame and ash. And so they'll always mm-hmm. be connected, right? And it's like because of this supercharged origin they're always yeah kind of like butting up against each other whether thomas is being over eager and spinning one too many yarns you know and getting on victor's nerves or again victor's troubled home life that thomas without much grace at all is always bringing up, you know, Uh, you never want to just like go up to a kid whose dad left their family and be like, what's up with your dad, man? How's how's he doing? Where'd he go? You know, he's very like blunt about all that, obviously to, you know, a point that makes Victor ashamed or or depressed or, or destructive, you know.
2: And I think what's interesting in that opening is it would seem to establish You know, at first glance, when he does talk about some being born of fire and some being born of ash, or some being made of fire and some being made of ash, that, you know, he says something along the lines of those who are of fire, they sort of consume everything that they touch. They burn things that they touch, and the child who's born of ash or made of ash will will crumble if someone touches them. And when you first glance at the two of them, you see Victor as this fiery figure, this at times very abrasive personality and you sort of go, "Oh, he's the he's the one that's that's fire, right?" And he's his anger is is clearly like burning everyone around him. And Thomas is this sort of geeky little dork, you know, this kind of uh, unathletic, you know, uh nerd with glasses. He's the child of Ash. But really as the film develops, it 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 really flips that around, you know, and you really do start to see how fragile Victor actually is. You know, mm-hmm. that that Thomas is blunt and he is at times tactless. Tactless, right? And yeah. and so in a certain respect he he kind of does bring Uh, a lot of chaos to to certain (laughs) situations and social situations. And yet Victor is incredibly, we discover, insecure about his relationship with his father, uh, as we mentioned previously, his identity as well. And I think this is showcased quite well in, as you've described, Ryan, you know, we kind of have these, these moments where we sort of walk in and out of the past and the present, and, and, and we also get conflicting memories presented to us and, and conflicting memories of Arnold shared between the two of them. You know, there's this, this really touching scene where Thomas is talking about, you know, going by this waterfall, going by these falls, and, and Arnold, this very um, mercurial, to, to put it lightly, alcoholic Having a very tender moment with him, you know, where he, you know, he does kind of feel somewhat responsible. We don't quite understand it, other than the fact that, you know, he he caught this baby that was thrown out of a window. You know, he caught Thomas when when he was thrown from the fire, but but that, you know, he he does have a tenderness towards Thomas. And he's like telling mm-hmm. him the story. And, you know, your dad found me, but I was sitting over there by the waterfall, and then he took me to Denny's. And he got me a Grand Slam breakfast. And he describes the Grand Slam breakfast, you know, two eggs, two sausages, two strips of bacon, and two pancakes. And by the way, at that moment, I got incredibly... You wanted to go to Denny's? Oh, fuck, man. It's been so long since I've been to a Denny's. And
0: I was just like, God damn. I would especially like to go to Denny's with Gary Farmer. That sounds so nice. Yeah,
2: hell yeah, you know? But then, of course, you know, you, you get Victor being like, you think that was my dad, you know? I didn't get fucking a
1: grand slam <laughs> breakfast at Denny's, right? No, you so, got a fist in the forehead right you now for, for breakfast.
2: For spilling the beer that his dad gave him to drink in the car when he was like 10 or whatever, you know. But yeah, you know, you get these like these these conflicting visions really of of Arnold that are going to be a big aspect of the the conflict. Between these two.
1: Yeah, because they're like wrestling over, you know, who he was, right? As they kind of, as they're mourning him, uh, they're, yeah, kind of jockeying their memories against each other.
2: And how, like, how he should be remembered or how he should be memorialized. Right. You know, Thomas is trying at times, it would seem, to 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 focus on the good, you know, to focus on on the better aspects of a very very tortured and troubled man. And Victor is just like, nah, that's bullshit.
0: You know, like, this wasn't a good dad. <laughs> He's just not a good man. And it's an incredibly fine line the film has to walk in representing this figure of Arnold, of the father, because it is such a touchy subject and it's one that it's hard to make us as an audience, sort of sympathize with in any way, like an alcoholic, abusive father. I mean, it's just like one of the hardest cells you could probably have on an audience. And, you know, we don't typically do this at the gauntlet, but I would say, you know, for your consideration, where is Gary Farmer's honorary Oscar? Um, <laughs> because I just like everything I see this guy, and he's just like so incredible. But this per- performance in particular, um, it's a tough part to play. And I feel like only he could have sold it the way he does. It's like someone that you can simultaneously be afraid of and be extremely nervous about his behavior, but also at the same moment when you get Thomas's perspective, see him as, as a figure of such warmth and such compassion. You know, uh, he's great in Ernest Dickerson's Demon Knight, you know, film you brought up, uh, brought
2: up last week.
0: That's right. Yes, he yeah. is. Yes, he is. <laughs>
2: he plays kind of the buffoonish deputy in that, but... <laughs> Who turns out to be quite a brave man in in the,
1: the demonic onslaught of Billy Zane. <laughs> you know, a thing this film has in common with the, you know, s- screwball comedies of yore that inspired the Continental Divide is the road trip. Like, it happened one mm. night, you know, and that kind of uh, zany antics. Of course, this is not a, a romantic comedy, but a buddy comedy. And so because they're poor... They've got a hitch and catch the bus. You know they can't just get in a car like like an easy rider and just ride out. You know whatever, looking for this bullshit. No, they got to ride like the Greyhound with you know some hostile people. Mm -hmm. But it's funny
0: when they get their initial ride to the Greyhound. It's when they come across a pair of women out on like a, a country road who are driving their car perpetually backwards. And I don't know, was it ever said explicitly why they were doing that? I assumed like maybe it was one of those quirks. Like my parents always tell stories about how they used to have a car that couldn't turn right. That like, you know, in a weird wreck, they like busted it so they could only, if they had to turn right, they had to take like three or four lefts in order to <laughs> to get in that direction you just gotta take big spirals everywhere that's hilarious <laughs>
2: exactly i think the implication being that you know it's a, it's uh a, it's the only kind of old broken down car that these women could could afford and uh, the transmission mm. is fucked and uh it can apparently only drive in reverse you know it's just uh
0: yeah so that's what i was assuming that i assumed that that was their only way of getting around um But it was a very nice image watching them, you know, after Thomas tells them a story um, in order as like a way of bargaining for a ride, he gives one of his own, you know, traditional oral storytelling moments there with the two of them. During the
3: 60s, Arnold Joseph was the perfect hippie because all the hippies were trying to be Indians anyway. But because of that, he was always wondering how anybody would know when an Indian was trying to make a social statement. But there's proof, you know, Back during the Vietnam War, he was demonstrating against it, and there was this photographer there. He took a picture of Arnold that day, and it made it onto the wire services and was reprinted in newspapers throughout the country. It even made it to the cover of Time magazine. In that photograph, Arnold is wearing bell-bottoms and a flowered shirt, his hair and braids with red peace symbols splashed across his face like war paint. He holds a rifle above his head, captured in that moment just before he proceeded to beat the shit out of the National Guard private lying on the ground beneath him. Another demonstrator holds a sign just barely visible over his left shoulder. It reads, Make love, not war. Jeez, did your dad really do that? Thomas, you're so full of shit. Oh, then what happened? Arnold got arrested, you know, but he got lucky. At first, they charge him with attempted murder. But then they plea bargain that down to assault with a deadly weapon. And then they plea bargain that down to being an Indian in the 20th century. Then he got two years in Walla Walla. So what do you think? Well. I think it's a fine example of the oral tradition.
0: They're impressed enough, so they they let him hitch with him. And it's a nice image, just seeing a group of people in a car backing up casually down the highway without any reference made to the fact uh, as to why they would be driving that
1: way. And I also think, too, it's just like a contrast, you know, as they're about to leave the reservation, right? It's like these women are going backwards. They're going a different direction than... The people outside of the reservation, right, which are Mm referred, you know, like off the reservation is referred to almost like an alien planet for these guys. In fact,
2: those women even ask them, like, do you have your passports? Yeah. You're, You're leaving the res, you're going to
1: a different
2: country. Exactly. And that's a very loaded statement,
1: of course, right? Exactly. Right. And so, yeah, I thought, you know, uh, obviously there's the practical, but the the poetic, you know, like they're out of step, they're out of time from this place, the United States, you know. Yeah. Talk about a continental divide. For- <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, of course, I'm sure you guys like I were rolling when uh, the first meaningful interaction that Thomas and Victor have on the bus is with a former gymnast who is uh, stretching uh, in the bus and and Thomas strikes up a conversation with her and she says that, yeah, she used to be uh, an Olympic gymnast and she was an alternate for the 1980 Games and then she accuses Jimmy Carter of ruining her Olympic dreams because Mm -hmm. of the boycott. Yeah, and and then we really get a sense of,
2: of how uh, abrasive Victor can be when he, he does point out to her that she was merely an alternate. Yes. And even if the Olympics had gone
1: on, she wouldn't have uh, stepped foot on the floor. Not a chance. <laughs> this is further developing the dynamic that, that you were talking about earlier. It's like Thomas is naive and Victor is cynical, but right, they're going to sort of start to blend or cross those tendencies in this, like, journey, right? Because Thomas likes people, he likes telling stories, he likes talking, he likes listening, and to a fault, right? And it is presented in this very naive way. Uh, And... You know, he is a guy that believes in the ec- ecstatic truth, the poetic truth of yeah. things. And he's right? a big mm-hmm.
2: fan of Dances with Wolves.
1: Yes, and <laughs> <laughs> there are many implications about his uh, cinephilia as a child being raised, you know, by uh, this lone gran- his grandmother, you know. Uh, he watched a lot of movies, right? So again, he's, you know, he's a fiction head. But in that moment, we we see the clear divide between them and and see how it's going to be may be healed, you know, over time.
2: Yeah. And really, like, that is, uh, you know, at the core of of this film is this exploration of story, this exploration of storytelling. And, you know, what is the value in true stories and what is the value in, in fiction or mythologizing or aggrandizing and that kind of thing? Because this will will come up quite a bit as the film unfolds a good yarn versus the nitty gritty details, you know, of how it actually went down and what is more important to us. Should we simply wallow in the bitter truth or print the legend, you know? <laughs> Do we, what, what is important for us to hold on to? I think for them, right, at, at first it's very different. You know, Victor is somebody that, that wants us to face the nastiness of it all like the real the real events as he sees them or as he saw them or perhaps even as he thinks he saw them. And Thomas is yes, naive, but again as the story does start to develop here, you you start to understand why Thomas's perspective might actually be more healing, you know, one of actual perhaps reconciliation. But yeah, you know, like as they journey, we get uh, them eventually to Arizona, and this begins this other section of the film where they they have to face that, you know, and when they meet this this woman, the woman who really started the journey for them by being, you know, the one who discovered the body.
0: Exactly, and I think that there's a really great scene when they do meet this woman, Susie, that speaks to what you were just talking about in terms of the way we think about the past in a very literal sense and also the way we can create a narrative of the past in order to understand ourselves and the people around us um, in a more meaningful way. And, you know, she talks about, after she's being confronted by Victor, about, you know, his own feelings about his father and his own, like, strained relationship as he sees him as someone that's fled and just, like, abandoned him and his mother. You know, she talks about how, well, he's always wanted to come home. He always only ever thinks of Idaho and the Kirtland Reservation as home, being with both of you. And this is even a moment when he like goes through his father's wallet and he sees a family photo. He sees home scribbled on the back of a photo of the three of them. But she tells a story that Arnold had told her. And it relates to basketball, and he talks about a game that Arnold and Victor played against a pair of Jesuits
1: in their frocks in the flashback, which is so (laughs) fucking awesome. And
0: as he details the game, we learn that it was it was so close, but that Victor had pulled through and made the winning shot. And she tells this to Victor. It's like you know, you know, Arnold told me all about you, and he told me about your family, and he 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 only thought. He thought so highly of you and, you know, he had nothing but, like, lovely things to say. And Victor reveals to her, well, that story's not true. I missed the shot. Is that the way he told it, right? That's what he asks. And I think that scene sort of explicitly addresses what you were just saying. This idea that as a way of repairing... Our relationships and as a way of healing by creating these narratives. You know, maybe there is an ecstatic truth there—the the love he has for his son, though you know the way he sees his son as someone who can achieve things, and it just his act of being there was enough to defeat the Jesuits. And he had to embellish it just slightly as he was telling a stranger. Um, but it gets to the heart of the way he truly feels about Victor.
2: And there's a further moment with Susie, even um, when I believe she asks for a story. And yes. and he's like, do you want a true one or do you want like a, a fictional one, right? Do you want the truth or do you want a lie? And she says, both, right? Give me both. And again, I, I think that's really where the core of this film, you really find it, you know, that it's like both are so vital to us, you know? There's Mm -hmm. value in both And, and it's good to have both, you know, depending on what you need in that particular moment. But give us both. That's what's really beautiful in this film and I think speaks a great deal to the indigenous experience. And it's like, what do we want to focus on? The fact that like, should we just focus on the tragedies? Should we just focus on the losses, the, the betrayals, you know, should we, should we let the Jesuits win all the time? Or can we also like find victory? Can we find victory even in the losses that have been sort of perpetrated upon us? You know. Well, yeah, man.
1: In in the scene when they're walking to the RV park right before they meet Susie, there's a moment where Thomas is just kind of like riffing. We've been traveling
3: a long time, man. I mean, Columbus shows up, and we start walking away from that beach, trying to get away. And then Custer moves into the neighborhood, driving down all the property values, and and we gotta keep on walking. Then old Harry Truman drops the bomb, and we gotta keep on walking somewhere. Except it's all bright now, and we can see exactly where we're going. (laughs) And then we get a beach house on the moon, but old Neil Armstrong shows up and boots us off into space. Then your mom gets that phone call about your dad being dead. Jeez, your dad's got to be living in Mars, Arizona. And we ain't got no money, no car, no horse. We have to catch the bus all the way down here. I mean, we ain't got nobody can help us. No Superman, no Batman, no Wonder Woman.
1: (laughs) Not even Charles Bronson, man. And he has this whole riff on American history, but of course, referring to their experience. We got to keep on walking. He's trying to weave a new tale of history like a new synthesis you know essentially like through what he's doing and that it is in that moment that he says no one can help us not even charles bronson
3: Uh, (laughs) and then
1: he and then he he starts fucking with victor by saying he's like your dad looked like charles bronson man you know but like
2: death wish (laughs) five
1: bronson (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> he looks like Death Wish Five, Bronson. Yeah, that shit is amazing. But that, that whole moment and like really struck me, especially as it's teeing up the moments that you guys just talked about, right? Yeah,
2: I mean, like, look, uh, you don't need to read Hayden White to know that that history is simply narrative, right? And mm-hmm. and history is is written. And it's written by certain people with certain perspectives and certain motives. What they choose to include, what they choose to exclude. So really, you know, Thomas is is just like fully on board this project of saying, yeah, sure, history is narrative. Let's write it, you know. And I'm gonna write my history, and I'm gonna I'm gonna narrativeize
0: in in the way that I can keep walking, right? That I can find a purpose. And Chris Eyre, the director I read in an interview, sort of addresses this specifically too with why his films are all set in the present. And that's because, you know, he, he feels that so many films that deal with history um specifically with the indigenous people of the united states that it ends up being stories of guilt and he feels that it was too easy to fall into those traps with the way the narratives are often constructed and that's why he always put his films set in the present because he was able to create narratives that were you know reflective in a way that he found meaningful and i think that this film is very explicitly laying out his argument uh, as to why there is healing in that process of thinking about the present as it relates to the past. And that's certainly what Victor
2: has to confront when he finally does, you know, enter his father's trailer. You know, he, he's very reluctant. Like, he does not want to go in there. And Susie is, is pushing him, you know, like, you you need to go in there. Like, you have to enter
1: this. You have to go to this place and face that. And she also, you know, drops the the ultimate truth bomb on him as well, which he previously did not know, which is, you know, Susie challenges his understanding of the fire that opened the movie. And she tells him what Arnold told her, and that's that Arnold saved Victor from the fire. And this is previously unknown knowledge to us, the audience, and to the characters themselves. We all know that Arnold saved Thomas, but Victor had no idea. And there's an additional bit of
2: information
1: as well. And then there's <laughs> with the, the other reveal, which <laughs> is that... He also started the fire on accident <laughs> with Roman candles because he was hammered. <laughs> yeah. And that, again, yeah, you know, it just, it, it you know, complicates Arnold even further. It complicates Victor and his thoughts even further. And so, yeah, it is, you know, going into that moment of confronting the RV and his father because he's kind of like in denial about it, even when he's told, right?
0: And this leads to... An extremely symbolic act as he is synthesizing all of this new information and reflecting on his past and thinking about his own image that he's cultivated as almost a form of protest against his father and just like the way that he's thought about his family. And so in this moment, Victor cuts his hair. Something that he has worn very proudly and mentioned that, you know, Indian men must have their hair long and not have it braided and have it down. And he cuts off a significant chunk of it, which then enters into the next section of the film where Victor is wearing um, <laughs> truly one of the worst <laughs> oh, wigs God. I've ever seen um in a movie and i so i was able to find some information <laughs> about it in, in an amusing interview with chris air where um th- the interview is even apologizes for bringing it up saying like i'm sorry i have to bring this up but we got to talk about the wig yeah, the fuck? he says there's an unspoken rule with native american actors that you really can't ask them to cut their hair because this is something that they live by because every year there are period pieces that come out with people who want roles in and it's it's burdening a native american actor to ask them to to cut their hair and so the way he talks about the wig is that it was like an error on his end where being like his first big feature and in like the frantic nature of production he sort of just like signed off and said like yeah that's good when he <laughs> initially saw the wig um and he's like we had two wigs because there were so expensive one to cut and one to wear and it was like that was just what the budget was and he says on the 19th day of shooting when adam looked at me and said how do i look dude i looked at him and said you look great uh, just just give me a minute and he turned around and walked behind the trailer and thought to himself i've just ruined my film <laughs> <laughs> So they kept filming. So it turned into this thing where he initially signed off on it, basically. And then when he saw it again, he realized what a mistake he made. Um, he does end the anecdote with a note saying, um, when Harvey Weinstein bought the movie, he said, the wig's fine. So they ended up, they didn't entertain the idea of doing a reshoot because at that point, Harvey Weinstein owned the movie and said, the wig's fine. The wig stays.
2: Oh, my God. Yeah, because it does. I mean, it does win the wig shows up it is it is like a car crash uh which is <laughs> interesting considering <laughs> the following events of the movie <laughs>
1: right you know? yeah the first car crash is the wig and the second car crash is the car crash
0: um, and yeah and that's what's ta- so they've collected arnold's ashes and they're returning you know north they're driving arnold's truck all the way back to, to Idaho and on the road they have a, a near collision with a car that has been wrecked and Victor has to veer off the road and they crash and they realize that they've stumbled upon the scene of a drunk driving accident where like a boorish horrible husband is just like screaming at his wife and then he's just like telling them to abandon the bodies that have then also been <laughs> driven off the dish <laughs> by <laughs> by himself he's like she's dead leave her like she's de- that <laughs> one's dead yeah. like there's nothing to be done there no is dead by the way everyone is very much alive and this guy is is so drunk <laughs> yeah he's so drunk and he's just frantically covering his tracks and when victor and thomas come up to help you know the first thing this piece of shit obviously thinks is he's like oh great you know two people of color here i can pin this on them and that's the first thing he does he just starts pointing at victor saying like you did this You crashed into me that then crashed into these people. You bumped me off the road. It was interesting how that was like something that they didn't even acknowledge his poison in that moment. Like all they could think of was helping out. And that's when Victor then just like sprints. He's like, I'm going to run, you know, it's like 20 miles to the nearest town in
1: order to to get help. That's an amazing sequence. It's, you know, intercut with the past and and. The fire—it's kind of like a dreamscape montage where he's like mm-hmm. running through all these landscapes and remembering his father, and that is where he—he he does seem to come to some kind of peace in his understanding of Arnold Joseph, right? With uh, I think he says in maybe voiceover or in the flashback races, he did one good thing, and that's good. You know, he saved me. He saved Thomas. He may have been a fucked up piece of shit, but he did a good thing. Yeah. And we should remember that.
2: Yeah. It, it again goes back to this idea of like, you know, what we allow to define ourselves, what we want to be the the narrative of our history. Are we
0: defined by just our tragedies or just our victories? Or are we defined by both? And then afterwards, once the seed was planted of the drunk driver claiming that victor and thomas were at fault for this terrible accident i knew it would be followed up on and i was i i was like tense thinking that this was going to be like sort of the the remaining climax of the film was like them having to prove their innocence how are
1: they gonna get out of this one (laughs) how are they gonna get out of this one and
0: you know they do like speak to the survivors of the wreck in the hospital and they're like you know we told the cops that you had nothing to do with it but i don't know they don't believe us like you guys should get out of town, and. They are, you know, as they're trying to make a quick little exit, they do have to, like, speak to the sheriff. And it is that, like, classic scene of the the nasty tough guy sheriff, like, you know, on a power trip, kind of, like, walking them through all of this. It's like an um, in the
1: heat of the night scene, you know? And he's like, yeah. uh, there's a great part because he, you know, the sheriff's like, you were you were drunk. You know, the guy said you were drunk and you crashed. And, yeah. and Victor says, again, embracing his identity and himself, he says, uh, I don't drink. I never had a drop of alcohol in my life, officer. Not one drop. Just,
3: what kind of Indian are you exactly? I'm Cordellane, and Thomas here is Cordellane too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah,
0: Tom
2: Tom Skerritt, by the way, oh, as yeah, the is Tom as the sheriff. Really leaning into his role at that moment.
0: <laughs> but yeah, after that moment of tension and sort of dragging them along, thinking that he was going to throw the book at them, he does mention, you know, like, this man that's accusing you, his wife, uh, does say he's, uh, kind of a piece of shit and a piece of work um, and it's, it's, he doesn't really have any grounds. Um, so he does let them go. I couldn't, I had, couldn't help but think of Bill Clinton, you know, watching that scene and having his own ideas of justice reinforced in that moment. Like, ah, of course, you know, the, the you know, an, an honest American sheriff would never pin this crime on those two men with uh, such flimsy evidence. And I, yeah, I could see him saying bravo to the law enforcement in that moment.
2: And also perhaps through this journey, President Clinton having to to reflect upon the truth uh, and, and his struggles with the truth in his own life and his own journeys and should a man's legacy really be defined by by one mistake or, Maybe a couple mistakes. Maybe
1: maybe a lot. Yeah. Yeah.
2: How should we really remember ourselves, you know?
1: And so ultimately, the guys return home after, as Thomas points out, six days, 12 hours, and 32 minutes. Quite a journey. And it's been quite a journey.
2: And yet again, this is like where we come back to an ending that I think strikes like both kind of like hopeful and optimistic notes and also some some very like kind of downbeat notes. Oh, yeah. Even though he's grown and even though both of them have sort of learned from this, you know, it's still this this reflection upon reality that isn't necessarily like... And everything's great and everything's wonderful. And then then he went to college and, you know, he got he got a great job right. somewhere, you know?
1: No, I mean it's like Victor and Thomas, you know, clearly, you know, their bond has has grown stronger and they end on like a note where they're like chill with each other after all this. But yeah, we return to the waterfall of the story Thomas told earlier in the film and we get his send off you know the voiceover of of him telling the story of the film and it is this monologue that is extremely downbeat and you know it's funny that you mention these kind of 70s road films and especially the the bummer kind of vibe that a lot of them had because i did read in an interview with michael apted that in the 80s, he was specifically and consciously reacting against those movies of the 70s. Michael Apted made The Continental Divide and other films like it being like, no more bummers. Happy time. (laughs) I want to put something positive into the world, you know? And it is, yeah... Hilarious because you know, 10 years later, you know, or 20 years later, 15 years later, it's 1998. The bummers are back, you <laughs> oh, know? Right, yeah, yeah, back in end of history territory. You know, in 1966, Ronald Reagan said, Politics is just like show business, you need a big opening, then you coast for a while, then you need a big finish. So, on that note, Andy. <laughs> Why don't you bring us on home here by telling us some presidential picks uh, that you were thinking about? It's a really fun journey, I
2: think, for anybody to take to 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 go through the list of of the movies that that presidents watched, and there's a lot of stuff out there about presidents' favorite films. And I guess I should say one thing overall that I wanted to ask you guys before I jump into mine, which is you know, for anybody that does this kind of research and you type in favorite films of the presidents, three presidents uh, have gone on record as saying their favorite or one of their favorite films High Noon. And both Republicans and Democrats, too. So I was wondering if, if you guys had any thoughts on that, like why particularly you think High Noon or what you find interesting about the fact that, that several presidents have, have called High Noon their favorite film. Truman said it was his favorite film. Eisenhower, I think. I had also read that Clinton uh, was a huge... Clinton, yeah
1: huge high noon guy well because to be pr- a president you have to have delusions of grandeur and i think it's it's natural for an american man who aspires to be president to see in this film uh, here's this lone guy who saves the day you know in a very simple straightforward way but of course i think we all know the film's a little more complicated than that
0: i guess the only thing i would add to that is. Um Thinking about the president's love for High Noon. Thinking about Tony Soprano's love for Gary Cooper himself. Yeah. You know, whatever happened to Gary Cooper, the strong, silent type? That was an American. He wasn't in touch with his feelings. He just did what he had to do.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's great. that's great.
0: And honestly, I could see any of those three presidents we just listed saying the exact same thing about sure. High Noon. Clinton claims he saw the film forty to fifty times in his life. Goddamn. Um, and I mean, maybe he was just burnt out by it, but um, he never watched it uh, during his tenure as president. Fake uh, it fan. is not on the list. Yeah. Well, three uh,
2: just three real quick ones that I that I find really interesting. I don't know if this was on the air or not, but you'd mentioned FDR, and I, I'd actually seen a couple different things about FDR's, you know, picks and favorite films, and and one that I'd read that he was a huge fan of is. I'm No Angel, starring Mae West and Cary Grant. That that I had read that FDR was actually a big fan. It's an- I'm just simply, you know, throwing that one out there because I love that movie and I love Mae West. And, you know, I think FDR is a little bit more of a, an anesthetist and an urban intellectual guy. And, you know, <laughs> at the time in the 30s, a, a good Mae West, a little body comedy, you know. I did want to bring up another film that Reagan was quite impressed by that you might have discovered in your research, which is that I heard uh, he was wowed by Warren Beatty's Reds that's right yes that he was was wowed by it and I love Reds I think it's a great movie and man I would have loved to have been a fly in the wall with fucking Ronald Reagan watching, you know, one of the great yeah. libs of cinema history's sort of ode to to leftist uh, romanticism.
1: You know, Ronald Reagan did watch a, a film that we watched on The Gauntlet, so I, I did want to share uh, his notes on that uh, that he wrote in his diary. He watched Missing by Costa Gavras, mm-hmm. and he wrote, and I quote a pretty biased slam at Chile and our own government. Oh,
2: of course he did. Yeah. Oh, man. Seething, probably. Since we're on the top subject, these aren't necessarily my things, but the, the least watched of all of our presidents was LBJ. That's right. Lyndon B. Johnson. I don't know if you read this interesting or weird sort of, Factoid about uh, something he watched multiple times during his presidency. Did
1: you read about uh, what the documentary about himself? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> I think they
2: said like ten times while he was in the White House. He screened. Oh my this god! This short documentary, a on,
1: president's country,
2: yeah, narrated by Gregory Peck. Right. Yep. Eighteen well, times.
1: Eighteen. <laughs> How long is it? Is it a short? It's a short. Is... It's a short. Yeah, yeah, yeah that fucking still. rocks, man. Yeah. The only interesting thing I found about LBJ was that in 1966 there were four hydrogen bombs unaccounted for after a collision near the coast of Spain, and Lyndon Johnson watched Thunderball. <laughs>
2: Fuck yeah, dude. LBJ. Man. Rocks, dude. There was that that interesting bit that I read about Eisenhower, you know, Eisenhower was a film fan himself, but Eisenhower refused to watch any movie with Robert Mitchum because of his pot bust. You know, once Mitchum was arrested for <laughs> marijuana, Eisenhower wanted nothing to do with him. And they said that, you know, if the projectionist ever put on a Mitchum film, he would get up and walk out. You know, Ike wouldn't have anything to do with that—that that stoner. Uh, not my president. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so get out there, folks. Go watch some some presidential pics of your own. You know, it's it's <laughs> it's quite an interesting uh,
0: ride, to say the least. Well, you know, that was my topic, Ryan. You're up next. What do you got for us? So I had to attend this like virtual conference for work, this event called Film X. And it was like this convention expo with like all these different industry people getting together. And it was funny how still like the the topic comes up again where people were – there's a conflicting viewpoints on the hope for the future of cinema. Like, oh, you know, Parasite was really successful and everybody's watching Squid Game. You know, maybe maybe people are okay with subtitles now. And then other people just, you know, sort of like realistically, like, you know, like it's been harder than ever to get audiences to come in and see foreign language films, things that are subtitled, making it really difficult to stay afloat as an art house theater. And, you know, it got me thinking about a time in the history of cinema when there was a thought that, film could be a universal language and that the images alone could tell these stories and it got me thinking about the silent era so the topic for next week is the universal language find me films silent films produced in non-English-language-speaking countries, and that's that.
1: You got it. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies, or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com.
0: Thanks, everyone.
1: Good evening
3: to my fellow Americans, eagerly awaiting the presentation of the 53rd Annual Academy Awards. It's surely
1: no state secret that Nancy and I share your interest in the results of this year's balloting. We're not alone. The miracle of American technology links us with millions of moviegoers around the world. It's the motion picture that shows us all not
3: only how we look and sound, but more important, how we feel. When it
1: achieves its most noble intent, film reveals that people everywhere share common dreams and emotions. Tonight, I applaud all who create, make, distribute, exhibit and attend movies. I salute the Academy for the influence its
3: work has on the world's most enduring art form. Film is forever.
1: I've been trapped in some film forever myself.